Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. <laughs> we are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And as Kurt's brain, you know, he has told us many times, it's like a sieve. Pronouns are the first to go. And he took a long pause right before he said my name. That only makes me think that either I'm not known enough on this very podcast or uh, something is happening. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I... it's 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 a matter of how often I say what I want to say because yeah. I want to say it every single time. This we is where you here. ask me. Wait, wait, this is what you this is what you ask me. Wait, say what? No, I don't need to ask you because I know what, and I don't need to hear it. So. I think, that, but our audience needs to hear it. I think our audience needs to be reminded. Oh, they've because, heard it. Well, yeah, but they but they haven't experienced it. And, uh, but if they oh. but, but okay, but they could experience it by doing what? Oh, that you, well, I don't know if you would actually experience what you're saying they're going to experience. I know. I, I think they would. So we, yeah. So just Kurt's trying to remind you in his own way, his own, I'll say his own roundabout way. I don't think he's going there by way of Phoenix that we have a YouTube channel that, uh, where you can watch us actually do the podcast if you're so inclined, if you would like to see. Kurt oh, and you would—you would be so—you would be—you are—you would be so inclined. Yes, yeah, loving that Henley you got this morning. It's really, really nice. <laughs> so we are here uh, in uh, episode four of mm. season four, and we are today going to be talking about trauma and the brain. Hmm. Hmm. Did you remember that? <laughs> I, I did. Okay. I did. That that part of my brain is still working. Good. Yeah, so uh, we have talked about how we want to invite people to come into this topic of trauma. And if, if you think about trauma as a house, there's lots of different doors to go into the house. We want to give people uh, an opportunity to think about it and to be introduced to it if you haven't. And um, through the lens of different ways in which we as humans experience trauma, so we've talked about the mind in our mm-hmm. last episode in general, and we we say that the mind is in, encompasses both our, our certainly our brain, but the rest of our body, and uh, then also it encompasses relationships. And so we talked in general terms about the mind and what its definition is, and integration, and the whole notion of an orchestra, and how trauma disrupts all that, and the primacy of God's presence and of our presence with each other in providing the grounding for the healing of trauma. That that it begins with presence. It begins with this construction of earned secure attachment. It begins with this construction of new neural networks. And so that's the overall sense of of the mind in general. Today, we're going to talk about the brain in particular, the trauma and the brain. Again, a way to give us a better handle on the different mechanics of what happens with trauma, and in so doing, uh, give us a, a greater capacity to just observe what our experience is and what the experience is of others, because the more we're able to observe, the more able we are to make sense of what we're sensing. So much of what happens with trauma is, as we've said before, we have this sense of being of our shattered 
capacity to perceive ourselves accurately. In addition to it just feeling really bad, I feel overwhelmed and without agency, I'm also incapacitated in terms of my ability to perceive what's actually happening. So the more we're actually able to get acquainted with what is happening in different features of our experience, uh, the more able we are to collaborate with God and with others in the process of healing. So today we're going to talk about the brain and how trauma you know, affects that. And um, I, I would want to say that when we, you know, again, we've talked about the mind and when we, when we talk about the brain, it's not as if trauma only ever just begins here. We're not just starting with the brain because the brain as opposed to the body is more important or it's where everything begins because as we'll hear in our next episode, the body plays its own particular role. So the brain is contingent with the body, right? They're in communication. One depends upon the other. What happens in the brain extends through our central nervous system out into the body, and the body's communicating with the brain as well. And it's not like there are clear demarcation lines between the mind and the brain and the body, but we are talking about them as three separate topics in order to give us a greater sense of agency in terms of approaching them. And so one thing we want to, again, just as this is a review that you can go back and review some of these things that we've talked about in previous episodes in previous seasons. The first thing that we would say, when we think about the brain and the way it normally develops and functions, we like to talk about it developing bottom to top and right to left. And, you know, what do we mean by that? We mean bottom to top. We mean that, you know, in our development, even just as a zygote, and then as we develop our little neural tube and how that tube at one end, if, you know, develops the brain stem. So I've got this spinal cord that we all know that we have. It runs up and down our back. And that spinal cord takes in all kinds of sensations and it leads to all kinds of motor activity throughout the body. But it's running up and down, communicating with the brain. So we begin with the spinal cord telling us what we're sensing in the world. And we also include the cranial nerves Cranial nerves are nerves that come directly out of the brain and the brainstem itself that help us perceive and function things of critical nature. So my vision, my hearing, my taste, my gag reflex, those things that are critical for survival, my cranial nerves and my spinal cord, they're in the, we talk about the bottom portion of the brain's system. And that runs north, it runs up to what we call the brainstem. Brainstem is at the bottom of the brain. If we have do what Dan Siegel teaches many students. We think about the brain in the palm of your hand. If you think about your wrist being where your brain stem is, and this is our fight or flight system, the part of me that is paying attention to whether or not I need to activate and move or be, or, 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 or flee to so flee or fight if I can't flee. But also it's the part of my brain with my sympathetic nervous system in which we encounter my accelerated, the part of me that wants to do things in the world, not just to flee or to fight, but I long to do things. We've talked in last season about how my desire is linked to this longing, this wanting. I want to go, 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 go. I want to move toward things from the time I'm born. This continues for us that we've got this accelerator and we've got the parasympathetic system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic system, the break, certain things I want to move to until I get to the edge of the cliff. Or I'm running, 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 and then a car comes and I stop. I want this brake system. But these kinds of things also are used, and we'll see more and more about how trauma activates certain portions of these systems. But this brainstem is a part of our brain 
that we have, we share in common with lower animals, reptiles, for instance. This is a part of our brain that doesn't do any thinking, but it runs a lot of our systems. All day, every day, our brainstem is part of a system that is coordinating life in a huge way, but that I'm not having to pay attention to. And then we move upwards into what we call further, kind of further literally anteriorly or higher up. And we, when we think about our that wrist model and our hand model, we curl our thumb into the palm of our hand. And we think about that as the limbic circuitry. The limbic circuitry is actually in a particular set of networks in the center of the brain, above, sits above the brainstem and in the center of the brain, and then extends its tendrils out into other parts of the brain. But it is from these particular networks out of which arises what we would call primary emotion. Our sense of what we're feeling most primally, and it's coming to us from the body, as we said, it's coming up from the spinal cord, registering with us. Part of the limbic system also includes a part of tissue called the amygdala. Now, many of you who are listening to this, like the amygdala has, is like, it's, it's, it's like it's in the papers. It, like lots of people know about the amygdala. Yeah. I, you have a look on your face. I, I thought that was a thing that back, hung in the back of your throat. Yeah, well, I th- I th- I, well, I think you have two of them. <laughs> I think you have two of them. It's <laughs> the amygdala, you know, the thing that gets back there. You know, if you have an allergic reaction, it gets really big, hangs low. It's just, yes. Yeah. Amygdala is about the size of a, you know, the size of an almond on both sides, sent toward the center of your brain on both sides, you know, behind your eyes. And it is, its purpose really is to, it, it's, it's the tissue that your senses register fear. Among other things, it's not the only thing. And we're learning more and more about the amygdala and what it does. And it's not a bad thing. It helps us register, like, this is something we pay attention to, mm-hmm. whatever the this is. And it registers fear both for things that are outside our skin as far as, as also things that are inside our skin, which is important when it comes to trauma because we experience trauma coming at us from the outside. But like I was saying in the last episode when I was talking about that little event that I had that was uncomfortable for me, you know, I only, ha- I only experienced that event one time. After that, it's all coming to me from within my own head. Right. And so the amygdala is registering things that I'm creating, not just that are being foisted upon me from the outside. And then this fear and this awareness and signaling of that gets my body ready. It talks to the brain stem and says, get ready to go. But it also influences and shapes lots of other things that I feel. I might be feeling joy. I might be feeling anticipation, for instance, if I go to hand my dad my test paper. We've used this example before with my 92%. But if I hear coming back, where's the other 8%? That's, there's, there's, my, there's going to be a registration with me that there's something wrong. It's, it's distressing. And I sense this. And so my brainstem and my amygdala are going to talk to each other in addition to the rest of that limbic circuitry that gives me a sense of feeling. But eventually, all of this also begins to activate other emotional tone in my body. And then I have to, and then it sends circuitry north to my cortex. That's the part of my fingers that curl over my thumb. And it's that cortex, my thinking brain, the part of my brain that registers my sense of calculation. What am I going to Wait, if I do this, what's going to happen? If I do that, what's going to happen? And I'm registering these things. And this activity, this bottom-to-top activity is happening from the time I'm even before coming, even before I come into the world. And then in addition to this, the cortex in turn, its intention is to what we call downregulate. 
what's coming up from below. The message is sent to the cortex, and the cortex registers, oh, this is what's happening. Now I need to decide how am I going to respond to what's coming up from below. And the capacity of my cortex to do this is deeply dependent upon my having had a secure attachment relationship that, again, trains that middle prefrontal cortex, that conductor of the orchestra, to help calm the brass, to quiet the timpani, the percussion section, to give the strings more room to play, to hear the piccolo where its solo comes in. It has to do this, but the only way that this cortex, this middle prefrontal cortex gets to do this is if it's in a relationship or relationships that enable it to learn how to do that. The whole while that this bottom to top phenomenon is taking place, we also have this right to left phenomenon, this notion that the right hemisphere of the brain typically comes online developmentally, meaning it's up and active in a way that is fairly ready to go from the time we're born and outpaces the left hemisphere, the right. So all the things that the right does, my sensing brain, my imaging, my feeling, my implicit memory brain, along with some of its connections to the limbic circuitry is already taking place. The left hemisphere comes online a little later with the formation of language, with literal processing, with logical process, so the left hemisphere isn't paying so much attention to tone, isn't paying attention to those nonverbal cues. It's paying attention to very linear processing. One leads to two, leads to three, and so forth and so on. And nuance isn't a thing that it gets. It's the part of our brain that is trying to make sense of what we sense. And in this way, in the same way that that middle prefrontal cortex integrates the bottom to top, so the left and the right conducting business back and forth helps me make sense of what I sense. And in the process of all of this, this neural integration is taking place in the presence of what we call contingent communication between me and somebody else. I know that's a lot of information that we're kind of throwing at you all. I think we're doing this because we want you to be aware that this developmental trajectory, I remember we, we, we said this in the last episode, that we want to make sure also that we remember that we're talking about these things not just in the abstract, not just as mechanics, but things that are taking place in the presence and activity of God, in the presence so, of activity of others. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens to the, you know, your story, your example of the kid that brings the test to his dad and feels this joy, comes in with joy, and... Uh, and and then gets shut down or gets, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that is sort of continually happening. And, you know, so so what happens to the brain at that point when your joy feels scary and doesn't feel, you know, all of those kind of things, right? Right, right. So we've we've talked about the process of how, you know, if this kid had come in and dad had said like, oh my gosh, it's 92. Like, right. tell me about that. What's that like? Well, I've never gotten a 92. Like, I'm just, wow, you've worked so hard for this. I'm really proud of you for this. What do you think about this? What's this like for you? And man, like all those things, I just, and so you're strengthening that joyful integrated process. But dad's response, what it tends to do literally, will heighten that boy's experience of shame. He will, in fact, like it wasn't even to be found, but now dad turns it on. Mm-hmm. 
He activates it. And so for that boy, the, the emotional, physical sense of shame is spliced together with the sense of joy. In one's memory, like literally your memory networks now take up the awareness that, oh, if we're going to be in the room with joy, we're also going to be in the room with shame. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you can begin to imagine how even, even that we would say, well, that's not trauma. That's like just, you know, growing up in Mount Pleasant, Ohio, like where dad's just trying to like, I want to help you get better. I want to help you get that hundred percent. But what dad isn't aware of is that you're actually putting stress on the brain in the presence of an event in which the brain is moving toward integration, moving, and, and, and not only that, like the boy's brain isn't just moving toward integration, he's moving toward dad. Right. I wanna come tell dad that I've got this 92. And so dad not only puts separation within the structure of the boy's brain itself, mm-hmm. in that like, I'm not now gonna ever, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be wary of joy. Because if it's associated with shame, like I'm not going there. But it also makes the son wary of dad. Sure. And this whole notion that, you know, normal growth and what we call affect regulation, we're just moving along, doing our thing, bringing you to my 92%. It depends upon these interpersonal interactions that enable the proper growth and connection, these neuroplastic changes that we would hope would take place. But when it happens like this, we would say that, you know, everything from mild to severe forms of insecurely attached parts of ourselves within ourselves and insecurely attached parts to others. And, uh, you know, we've got dozens of stories of those who are listening where you like, you're like, yeah, I know what that means. There's a story that I tell about uh, a guy that came to see me um, uh, we would begin this story with a guy named Calvin. We, we may have told this story before. Calvin was in his mid-30s, and he's married and had his first kid, and he goes to his mom for advice about parenting, and his kid's about you know six to nine months of age, somewhere in that range. And his mom says, like, I don't, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the dad. I can't give dad advice. I think you should talk to your father about this. His father's name was Ed, and Calvin didn't really want to, like, was puzzled. He was really kind of irritated because... His mom was the person that everybody in the family talked to about any kinds of things that had to do with relationships. Mm-hmm. Dad, not so much. And uh, he was kind of irritated, finally called up his dad, and his dad, Ed, said to him, uh, yeah, your mom told me, and I knew that this call might be coming, and so I just want to let you know something. And dad proceeds to tell Calvin that uh, he's more about his story, more about dad's, more about Ed's story that Calvin hadn't known. And he tells him the story of how you know, uh, Ed's father, Calvin's grandfather, had died before Calvin was born. And uh, Calvin was the oldest of five. His father, his grandfather had died. And so he'd never met and never known him. He'd known that there had been some drinking that his grandfather had uh, been involved with. But uh, Ed went on to tell Calvin, you know, when your uh, grandfather would get intoxicated, like he would get really ugly, he would get violent in the house and he would throw, he would throw, you know, be violent in the kitchen and I swore that if I ever had kids, I wouldn't, you know, they're like, that was not ever going to happen in my house. And so I just made sure from the time we had kids that I wasn't going to come within a 10 foot pole of even getting close to uh, doing something like that. So 
I let your mom take care of that. And, uh, it, you know, then it meant that I was, you know, I, I made sure you had clothes on your back and a roof on your head and you went to mass and all the things, but like, I'm not gonna, uh, the other stuff is, is just too whatever. But then your kid was born and I, you know, for reasons I can't explain, I started to get upset because like, I wanted to be, I like, I, I loved having a grandson and wanted to have connection with him. Like, and I didn't know what to do. And I started to get like, I was like kind of moping around the house and not very like, we've got this grandkid and I'm, I'm not very, it's not very easy for me. And your mother says, well, I think you should go talk to this guy. And into my office walks 63 year old Ed. And for the first time ever, Ed starts to talk about his childhood in a way that he's talked about it with no one, including his wife. And Ed found the words, which found the tears, which found this regeneration. And Ed is now talking about things in ways that he's never talked about, including his longing to have a connection with his grandson. And he's talking now more with his wife than he ever has before about these things. At one point, I get a call from his wife, lovely person, and she says, I'd like to know what you've done with my husband. She said, you know, I spent 40 years being married to this guy, realizing that, like, life was going to be what it is. It's solid. Like, like we love each other. It's okay. But, like, like, he's not a guy that I talk with. Like, I talk with other people because he doesn't do this. And now he's talking and I can't get him to shut up. And, like, I got other things to do. <laughs> and, like, she was, like, genuinely, like, it was, it was not easy for her because she's, she's built an entire life for 40 years that this is how we operate. Right. And now, like, you're, like, you've got this wrinkle in the matrix, because I don't, I don't know what to do with this guy. Sorry for your pain, I said, you know. And so hence, when Calvin calls his mother around this issue, you know, she's like more than happy to like tell him, like, talk to your dad. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we, we, we have, this is, this is a story of how Ed began to talk with me and then he begins to talk with Calvin and Calvin of course is like has mixed feelings because like where the heck were you when I was like you know my kid's age where the heck were I mean there, were, there was a part of him that was like both grateful that his dad is doing this work but also kind of pissed that he's like why why now do I get this over the course of the next 18 months Ed and Calvin start to have regular conversations together in which they're talking about things and What's so striking, you know, Calvin had originally called his mother because he was having trouble with his nine-month-old. And what's so striking is that as Calvin starts to talk to his dad, because his dad is doing all this work, Calvin's parenting categorically changes with his nine-month-old and his relationship with that changes forever. And this is one of those situations in which we see, you know, what at first glance, it doesn't seem like it's all that traumatic when we think about what's happening between Ed and Calvin, right? Ed's, Ed's doing the best he can, and he's, he's going to make sure that he doesn't ever hurt his kids. And you say, well, that's probably better than like not paying attention to it and then doing whatever happens. So, but there's a certain sense in which there's a certain negligence, a certain sense in which Calvin didn't get things from his dad that he needed to get from him that leads to a certain way in which Calvin's neural networks develop insecurely. And there's a certain small T traumatic experience that Calvin has many over and over and over and over and over again. So like the kid, you know, so if his dad ever gets mad at him, like Ed just leaves the room. Ed doesn't say he's mad. He goes and talks to his wife and his wife goes, your dad's mad. 
Like, because he can't have that conversation because he's afraid that, like, I don't want to be throwing anybody up against the kitchen wall. But this is a story in which we see how trauma that began in Ed's story that was violent and was vile uh, ends very differently. But there are other stories. And, you know, many, many years ago, and this is now close to 30 years ago, I had another man who was in his 60s who... uh, came into my office who was severely depressed. Um, and, you know, we talked about his life and we, we couldn't really, um, I, it, was, it was really difficult for him to talk about his story, to talk about his marriage, to talk about his kids. He had uh, two daughters. He had a granddaughter and he had a granddaughter and this granddaughter was pregnant with her, with her child and... Um, one thing led to another, and sometimes when we have situations like this, we say, like, gosh, we'd love to have some other family members come in and talk about things. And so, um, you know, uh, he asked, you know, he said, like, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in, and if it's okay, I'm going to bring my wife, and I'm also going to bring my daughter and granddaughter. So the granddaughter was an adult. The granddaughter was in her 20s, young, early 20s. And uh, they're in my office, and, um, you know, he can't talk for some other reason for some reason it's getting really really i mean and he'd been so depressed that he was you know he was we were thinking about like does he need to be in the hospital because he's thinking he doesn't want to live and all these things that were that were taking place what was what, what's going on here he'd never really had history of depression before and like suddenly out of the blue mm. we'd done a medical workup on him there was nothing going on there like it, you know he was he was otherwise pretty healthy person and uh, as we're talking uh, his daughter who's in her late 40s, starts to talk. Because she was born when this guy and his wife were in there, like 21. And she says, I think there's something that we need to tell you. And like, you know, you can't make this stuff up. And what she went on to tell me was that her daughter, who's in her 20s, who's there in the room, is actually her father's daughter. And not only that, But his granddaughter was pregnant with his child. You can't make this stuff up. And as we sat in the office, of course, it's, you know, you don't, you don't have words and the, the, uh, the ramifications of all this, you know, and, and what we had to do then just in terms of t- t- taking care of everybody, getting other clinicians involved, uh, the whole nine yards. And uh, they, you know, the, the family needed, you know, just tons of wraparound services, tons, tons of help from, you know, from a pastor, a pastor who stepped in, who um, was crucially important in helping take care of this, you know, not, and pastors aren't, all, aren't always able to do this, but they just happened to be part of a church that uh, was able to step up and, you know, do some remarkable things. But it, it, you know, not not surprisingly, this is a uh, this is a story that has, you know, powerful ripple effects. And I know that uh, there may be those of us who are listening um, who hear this story and think, I, I, I can't believe this. And at the same time, uh, you may be aware that this feels maybe vaguely or not so vaguely familiar. Mm. And 
you know, it's these kinds of things. But, but at the same time, you look around and you think like, my goodness, like these people have survived. Somehow in the human condition, we find enough resources to survive, but there comes a certain time. And in this case, uh, this man could no longer tolerate his awareness that there was now going to be another child on the way. And this kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back. And there's all kinds of other things, of course. You, you could talk about this story, f- you know, for a month of Sundays. But, you know, we, we, it's, it's, one of this, it's one of these notions in which we see how trauma interrupts the brain's highway connections, both that run from top to bottom. Because if these kinds of actions are taking place in the, fa- in the home, you, you got to wonder, gosh, when dad or then grandfather kind of steps into the room and does all this, like you got to be aware that like somebody's afraid, but somebody is so afraid that you can't take action. And so those highways that are intended to run bottom, you know, top to, you know, the bottom to top, they say like mayday, mayday, mayday. But the, you're aware that like you're, you, you can't flee. Like, and so you just take it. And so in the same time, like the bottom to top highways are disrupted, the right to left, like making sense of what I'm sense of what I sense is not making any sense either. Like, and so I have to make up a story. I have to tell a story like who, you know, my, my, yeah, this is my husband's child. Like, well, actually it's no, it's not my husband's child. It's my father's child. It's not my boyfriend's child. It's my grandfather's child. And, And so we have to tell stories that also reinforce this and this completely disrupts the brain. Moreover, we also put into motion the activation of a metabolic stress environment for the brain. So we've got metabolic stress hormones. We've got ACTH. We've got cortisol that, you know, when the adrenal gland is activated and we've got to, like, be on the move. Right. If we can't move, it just keeps sending it. And after a while, uh, you know, I mean, and our brain, our, our brain depends on that in order for us to take action. Sure. And so we can you know, not not only do we tolerate, but we benefit from ACTH and from cortisol in the short run. We can tolerate it certainly for a few hours, for a few weeks, maybe sometimes when we're under stress and it's not very high. But if we then have to swim in a concentrated level of it, it essentially begins to poison the brain. It becomes toxic for the brain. If these kinds of things happen in early childhood in particular, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about is that, you know, the, 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 the newborn comes into the world with like just trillions of potential brain synaptic connections. And part of the healthy development of a brain is what we call pruning. Just like you prune a tree to have, a, have it bear more fruit, we prune, the brain is pruned when we say no to a child. We prune the brain when we pay attention to certain things and not pay attention to other things. But in traumatic situations, these kinds of metabolic changes can overprune those neural connections such that it becomes really difficult for us to make those connections later on in life. Mm. But we got to survive, and so we form patterns of coping that enable us to survive. Yet, if we imagine our orchestra again, now what we're trying to do is play Beethoven's Ninth, but... You only have tubas. I mean, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just shattered. Right. right. We don't have tubas. Sometimes the conductor isn't even on the stage. Right. We're having to, like, make this up as we go. And so we see how trauma then 
disrupts and disintegrates the brain both from this top, you know, bottom to top, top to bottom feature as well as the right to left, left to right feature, and then this metabolic feature. And these things can, you know, you think like, well, no, no wonder they feel so overwhelming. Another portion of the brain's system that we often talk about is the autonomic nervous system. We talked earlier about, we explicitly said we've got this sympathetic and this parasympathetic system, and there are some particulars about that, that that's all wrapped up in what we call the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. And that's an important part that part of the brain that actually connects the brain quite extensively and deeply to the body. And we're going to talk about how the autonomic nervous system is the brain's way of regulating the body and the body regulating the brain. And we're going to look at it in our next episode through the lens of a particular way of imagining the brain's activity called the polyvagal theory. A guy named Stephen Porges uh, has developed this and it's now had lots of application in the clinical world. We'll talk about that. The polyvagal theory will explain that in our next episode. But all this is to point out that we've been talking about is that we, we, you know, last episode we talked about the mind and that part of the mind is the brain. And we've talked about that this episode. And of course we could, you know, we could talk forever and a day about other, you know, different aspects of the brain. We could delve even more deeply, but we want to really just say that it's really important for us to recognize that uh, I want us to be curious about your brain. Curious, first of all, about how my brain works. What are the things about it that we've learned here today and how trauma wants to interrupt, interfere with that? How does it want to interfere with the integration process that is taking place in my bottom to top development and my right to left development? And what are the coping strategies that end up becoming the story that I tell I've told this story before about one of my friends who, in, you know, in, in first meeting together, and I said, tell me what it was like growing up in your house, and his response, I grew up in a loving Christian home. And that was a story that we told, and then when we talked about who was in charge of discipline and how did that work in your family, he then, he, he talked about how, you know, he had a mother who was extraordinarily angry and verbally brutal and would have these verbal fisticuffs out of the blue with this this person's younger brother this guy that I'm seeing you know he's like you know everything that he does turns to platinum. I mean, he just everything's effective because he he like he's the guy who's like doing the right thing. The oldest one, he's going to do the right thing. And um, his younger brother had trouble, and this these, these these conflagrations that would take place on a regular basis. And I would say, gosh, you you just got done telling me that you grew up in a loving Christian home. Help me understand how this. Help me with this. And you know what what essentially we're hearing, what we're seeing is. This is a guy who lived in a toxically traumatizing house. I mean, these kinds of fights would happen at least once a week. And so you figure they're bracing for impact. You don't know when they're coming. You just come home. At one point, at one level, you're coming home. You're like, I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to create any chop in the water. I'm just going to 
get home, do my homework, go to dinner, do my homework, go to bed, get up, get out of here. And this is a way that I learned to cope with my trauma. I cope by actively dissociating from, disconnecting from a particular thing that is true in my family. But it doesn't keep my body from sensing it. It doesn't keep it from registering in my brain and in my implicitly remembered neural networks. And at some point or another, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with that because otherwise it's just going to continue to disintegrate my mind's function. And this is, this is what I mean. Like we're so resilient, that story that I told about the father and his daughter and granddaughter and, you know, that are always children. That was a family that continued to be able to survive. This is a guy in this story, this is a guy who continues not just to survive, but like he's like doing everything really, really well. And one would say, you know, like, hey, how are you doing? It's great. Everything's great. Except why is he in my office having, you know, now multiple panic attacks a day coming out of places that he can't, he has no idea where they're coming from. And as we like to say, you know, if you were to probably said this before, if I were to say, you know, Pep, could you pick up that five-gallon bucket of water? You could do that. That's no big deal. But if I say, yeah, I'm glad you can pick it up because we've got a five-mile hike we're going to take and you got to carry it. You know, you're 100 yards in and you're done. Like, I no, I don't want to, I don't want to carry five-gallon. It's heavy. Right. But we just find more ways to keep carrying the bucket. Yeah. I mean, but I guess the point is the goal is not just survival. That's right. I mean, the goal is we want to thrive. We want to be integrated. We want to be have lives that are full of all the things, right. you know, right. and, and not just survive. Right. And again, uh, as we said, uh, I think at the top of this hour, the beauty of why we are talking about this at all in the first place. Right. Is because that unimaginable story I told before created the opportunity for a church to come into the picture to create a net that led to life in places and ways that no one could ever have imagined it. And with my friend that I just now described, it is in naming his story for what it truly is, Mm -hmm. renaming it such that he now knows that it wasn't, he didn't grow up in a loving Christian home, but it's okay. We're going to talk about what kind of a home you really did grow up in, but you're going to talk about it, not in the abstract. You're going to talk about it with me and with others who are the body of Jesus, who are the presence of those who are eager to hear about what is painful and broken and disintegrated in order for us to give you the opportunity for new neural networks to begin to emerge, for you to talk about and put language to your rage and your sadness and your confusion and all those things that you've been waiting to state since you were four years old. And with the practice of that in a community of contingently connected listeners you begin to experience what it means to feel felt. You begin to experience what it means to weep uncontrollably and no one leaves the room. 
you're worried that if you start to weep, you'll never stop. And we say, we want you to weep until you're done, because that's how long it's going to take. And your weeping might continue for a period of time today, and we bring it to a pause, and you come back next week, and it continues, and you come back next week, and it continues, and we say, yeah, because this is, your tears are telling us something about what your heart needs the world to know. Mm. And your tears are what God has been waiting to see so that he can bottle them, each and every one of them. And so we talk about these stories not because they're grotesque, not because they're horrible. We talk about them because they are examples of the real world, but it is the real world into which the real God has come. Not some fake God, not some paper mache God, but a God who gets bruised and bloodied a God who's not afraid to step in the room and let us do to him what we've been doing to each other from the time we've been on the earth and hear him say, I'm going to receive this, I'm going to absorb this, because in some respects, I'm where it all started. And I'm going to come for the things I've made. And I'm not going to let any amount of trauma get in the way of it. Not even if it has to kill me to do it. You know, I appreciate um, I appreciate you telling these stories, um, and I just want to reiterate to what you said. You know, as we talk about these things, this may be bringing up things in people. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, just we just want to encourage you to um, talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. that's a therapist or a doctor or a friend or a pastor or, or you know, start by talking to somebody, a trusted friend. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Step one. Yeah. And, and, and we can, you know, there, there is, you know, it's kind of like if you're going to, if, 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 if you're going to be God and make people. You already, you do so and you see Good Friday coming. Like, it's risky. If we're going to listen to this podcast this season, if we're going to be present with it, it's, it might feel risky because it might say, oh, it, it's like the Holy Spirit is coming for those parts of me that he is not willing to leave alone. He's not willing for me just to cope. He's not willing for me just to survive. You were created for beauty beyond your imagination. Survival is not the option God has for you. Right. This is not being Pollyanna. This is not pretending that things aren't as brutal as they feel. This is to say that in the middle of the brutality, Jesus is coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. So this week, uh, for an exercise... Again, we've, we did this in our last episode, and this week what I want to invite you to do is simply continue to pay attention to these two different ways in which the brain is working. First of all, the three different ascending portions of the brain, we're brainstem, limbic circuitry, and your cortex, getting a sense of like when you feel like fight or flight, when you find that you're feeling things that are discomforting. 
when you recognize that you're feeling those things and you just want to put them away, you just want to like cut them off. Also, then pay attention to the right and left hemisphere and how like when you sense things, what I sense and image and feel, and then how does that move to the left hemisphere and the words that I use and the story that I begin to tell as I try to make sense of what I'm sensing? Again, we often do all of this so automatically as a response to our trauma that we simply reinforce the trauma without knowing that we're doing that, primarily through our coping strategies. By pausing to be curious about it in the first place, we can then give ourselves some space to become familiar with how we're responding to those experiences, and as we move forward, enable us to describe them more effectively. And then when you are you know, making those reflections, make a list of those people with whom you've, have, you know, you've had an experience in, that, that has been trustworthy, where you have some sense of secure attachment, and consider having a conversation with one or more of them to tell them about what you're discovering. Again, this notion of we're not just asking you to just spread out those things that feel vulnerable in front of anybody, but those people who are with you and for you, uh, as you tell them about your story and you receive their empathy, your story gets the opportunity to begin to change. And, and, and rightly, Pepper, as you said earlier, when you feel that things are getting overwhelming, that's when we want you to really take seriously the possibility of like calling a therapist, checking in with a pastor or a priest, close friends or community, so that you can continue to strengthen your resilience uh, as we continue to walk through this topic together. Great. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for today. And uh, next week, we'll be speaking about polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Pollyanna earlier. I'm sure that they're probably related <laughs> to one another. Well, they're uh, cousins. They're cousins, Polly. Vagal and Anna. Vagal and Anna. Yes. Um, okay. Listen, this is great, Kurt. Uh, yeah. Really good stuff. And I appreciate you. See you next week. All right. Until next Love time. You. Love you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at BeingKnownPod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.